0: From Washington, this is Talking Tax. I'm David Schultz. Today, we have two discussions for you from the recent Bloomberg Tax Leadership Forum. Both of them focused on global tax issues. In a bit, you'll hear from Holly Paz, the acting commissioner of the IRS's large business and international division. But first, we're going to hear from Grace Perez-Navarro, head of the OECD's Center for Tax Policy and Administration. It's been a pretty big couple of years for the OECD, with the progression of its two-pillar plan to reshape where and how multinational companies pay taxes. Bloomberg tax reporter Isabel Gottlieb spoke to Perez-Navarro last week, and Isabel started off by asking her where things stand right now for the project.
1: Well, as you know, we've already issued uh, two public consultation documents, one last July, a progress report, and then uh, we issued the one on tax administration and tax certainty, and you may have seen, we've just published the uh, comments that we received on that. So um, that is a big, big chunk of the work on Pillar 1. There are still some other pieces of Pillar 1 that we are working on, and we have a few Christmas presents waiting for you in December. We will be releasing a public consultation document on Amount B, which you know is a part of the project that is focused on simplification of transfer pricing, uh, in particular in trying to address the issues and challenges that developing countries face in applying uh, the arm's length principle Because largely because of the lack of comparables in developing countries. So that will be, uh, we hope, coming out in early December. We will then also uh, be issuing a public consultation document on the issue of unilateral measures and relevant similar measures. As you know, part of the whole reason we're doing (laughs) Pillar One is to try to eliminate all of these unilateral, uncoordinated. Measures, and so that will be coming out. So those are two the the sort of final pieces of the overall package. Then, of course, in order to implement all these different pieces, we are developing a multilateral convention um, in order to implement the amount A, the new taxing right, the reallocation. Um, of some portion of residual profits. So we have been working on that multilateral uh, convention uh, in parallel with the development of all of these different rules. So that is uh, a key challenge. Uh, We have uh, been moving ahead, and with the parts of the project that are already stable, we've been developing the different parts of the convention. We need to finish uh, the text of the convention uh, sometime in the spring so that countries then have sufficient time before the the actual signing of this convention to have it reviewed by their foreign affairs departments, et cetera. Uh, But the aim remains to have a signing ceremony um, in June or July of uh, next year.
2: And to get to a place where there's a convention text that everyone can sit down and decide whether they're going forward or not. Um, So far we've seen consultation papers. None of those are consensus documents yet. Um, So how do we move from where we've been, those non-consensus consultation papers, to the level of agreement that brings us forward into the convention?
1: Well, that is um, the big challenge here um, because we have, around 140 countries sitting around the table. Each one has its own areas of interest, and there are multiple different pieces of this whole package. There's the tax certainty, there's the the sourcing and nexus rules, there are all kinds of different parts to this puzzle. And what we need is to have um, the definition of those different pieces so that then countries can do what I call the grand bargain. Um, You need this this big negotiation then to agree because, of course, no country wants to start conceding things uh, on different issues, even if they may know where they may ultimately land on a particular issue. But they don't want to give something up now not knowing what the other pieces will be and what others will, in effect, trade for that. So we need to have um, that kind of big bargain discussion in the coming months.
2: And that'll be early next year?
1: Yes, that would need to be early next year so we can finalize the text and so that we can then move to the the next phases of of the convention finalizing it.
2: And turning to the convention, um, there's text as part of the deal that the convention will come into force when a significant majority of countries have ratified it. It's... Broadly understood that includes the U.S. Um, Can you confirm the U.S. would have to ratify the...
1: Well, I think for Pillar 1 to make sense and to work, you would need the U.S. on board because this is where some of the largest multinationals are based. And the whole point of this is really to get into a place where we have um, countries agreeing both the countries where the multinationals are headquartered, but also the countries where they operate agreeing. Now, if you only have the countries where they operate agreeing, that you won't have your reallocation of, of taxing rights. So you would need large countries, including the U.S., to be part of uh, the convention. And how do, how do we get from
2: where the U.S. is, which seems a bit skeptical, to to saying, yes, and presumably this is a Senate vote, what do you think has to happen?
1: Yeah, I think what has to happen is um, what has to happen in every country, not just the United States. You need um, the, the Senate and business, which influences the Senate, um, will have to come uh, to a conclusion that they're better off signing this multilateral convention as opposed to facing a world where we have uncoordinated, unilateral measures, whether they're digital services taxes, whether they're new significant economic presence tests, or other measures designed to address the issue of the fact that there are some very large multinationals where they end up not paying uh, tax in certain countries because of the way the current rules work. And so um, that is the calculation that every country at the end of the day will have to make before they, before they sign and then uh, before they ratify, although presumably most countries, once they sign, will move forward and ratify. It's a little bit different in the United States. But but that's the calculation that governments will have to make, is are we better off in a world with unilateral measures, with possible trade wars at a time when we're having a real war, when we're having this inflationary crisis. And, uh, you know, I think that is just the calculation that each government will have to make. You mentioned the support of business for the deal
2: playing into the Senate's decision. Do you think business is there yet
1: on supporting Pillar 1? Well, I think as everyone in this room and watching this webinar knows, that business is not necessarily... Um, unified in terms of how they perceive this. Um, Every business is going to look at this in terms of whether they see themselves as winners or losers in this whole uh, game. But I do see business actively and constructively engaged. Um, And I would say that that is very different from, for example, when we were doing the BEPS project in the very beginning, I think all we we were seeing uh, was just a lot of negative criticism and just don't do this, don't do this. Whereas now, what we are getting are businesses coming to the table and proposing possible solutions um, to some of the many technical issues uh, that we face in this project. Let's go back to about B, which you
2: mentioned earlier. That's the project to simplify and streamline transfer pricing. Um, you mentioned a consultation coming out soon Everyone will be looking forward to that, I'm sure. Can you unpack some of the big questions that were debated between countries leading up to that consultation paper? Kind of What were the the big issues to be negotiated there?
1: Yeah, I think one of the biggest issues in the area of amount B has to do with uh, the scope. How far do you want to go? And you have some countries that are very keen on simplification, um, whereas you have other countries that, Um, are more conservative and want to remain very much focused on the transactional approach of um, the current transfer pricing guidelines. And so that is um, the deal to be struck. Where in that spectrum uh, do you draw the line? But as we said in the October statement, the main focus of this is really to try and address uh, a very fundamental challenge in developing countries, which is that they don't, have comparables to use. And so how do we simplify in a way that makes it easier for them to apply the transfer pricing rules? And so that I think is, is probably the biggest uh, issue is the, the scope. Turning to pillar
2: two, and that's the 15% global minimum corporate tax rate. Um, a bit of news on that, I don't know how many of you have seen the UK announced just this morning it was moving ahead on pillar two. Um from the OECD side the next thing we're expecting is a package of implementation guidance. Can you give us a timing update and maybe a few items we might see when that comes out?
1: Yes, yeah, so we are planning uh to deliver the implementation guidance um probably just before Christmas. Sorry, not because uh <laughs> we want to ruin your holidays, but we are there are a lot of issues we need to address, and we uh, will try to do that as quickly as possible, but we think it will probably be around December twentieth, I would say that that guidance comes out. What will it cover? Well, uh, it will cover a lot of administration administrative guidance on a range of issues. It will include um, things like safe harbors, it will include uh, peer review process, setting that out, and it will also include the information reporting uh, model information reporting return. And that's the model form businesses
2: would use. Um, And I I mentioned the UK. There's a lot of other countries that are on the verge or or already moving ahead. Um, What do you see as kind of the path forward for Pillar 2 over the next year or so?
1: Well, I think, as you say, um, there are a lot of countries that are moving ahead to implement. We've already seen, well, today we saw the U.K. um, make an announcement, but we've already seen countries like Switzerland, Canada, Australia. We had the five uh, EU countries that said whether or not there is a directive, they will move ahead. Um, I think Belgium established some legislation in anticipation of Pillar 2 uh, coming forward. And the other thing that uh, we are hearing is developing countries are um, preparing to implement Pillar 2. They see um, the, the QMDTT, the Qualified uh, Minimum Tax, as being uh, very beneficial to them. So uh, they're, I know that with ATAF they're developing something, the African Tax Administration Forum uh, model QDMTT for them to implement. So... I think it's pretty clear that an awful lot of countries will be implementing um, as soon as we get all this guidance out. So that's very positive.
0: That was the OECD's Grace Perez-Navarro speaking with Isabel Gottlieb. Now we turn from the OECD to the IRS. The agency's Holly Paz, who leads its large business and international division, spoke to Bloomberg tax reporter Michael Rappaport, and she started off by talking about how her division will use the new funding it received from Congress earlier this year.
3: Uh, The agency has set up a new office to lead efforts to transform the agency following the passage of the IRA. It's called the IRA 2022 Transformation and Implementation Office. And that office is leading efforts to develop an operational plan that will be provided to Treasury by by mid-February of next year. And that plan will lay out in more detail how we plan to utilize the additional funding. From an LBI and i perspective, you know, the additional funding, you know, will certainly provide resources, not just for enforcement, but for taxpayer service and technology enhancements as well. We expect, you know, enforcement efforts to be focused on many of the areas for which LB&I has responsibility, uh, particularly large corporations, large pass-throughs, and high-income, high-wealth taxpayers.
4: Uh, let, let's... Um Let's now drill down into some specific issues that LBNI is 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 addressing. Um, as you know, just yesterday, the IRS decided to uh, they withdrew and replaced a, a revenue a revenue procedure that dealt with uh, the process by which taxpayers uh, inform the IRS about uh, potential errors in in their in their, uh, their filings before before or at the same time an audit begins. Can you talk a little bit about exactly what what the IRS did and what the effect is going to be?
3: Sure. And this was an effort that had been in the works for quite some time, a couple of years now. Uh, specifically, we replaced Revproc 9469 with a new revenue procedure, Revenue Procedure 2022-39. Uh, and it is intended to clarify which taxpayers can make disclosures to avoid the imposition of accuracy-related penalties. The old guidance had been tied to our CIC, or Coordinated Issue, compliance program that actually no longer exists and has not been in existence for several years. So the new guidance was intended to identify, In the CIC program was really more of a continuous audit program. We've now moved to large corporate compliance, which is really a, a year-by-year uh, analysis of risk using data analytics. So the, the open question had been, you know, it, what taxpayers should be eligible to make these disclosures, which taxpayers are sort of more in a continuous audit posture, even under the large corporate compliance program. And that's what the guidance defines. And specifically, what the revenue, new revenue procedure provides is that Uh, both corporations and partnerships uh, who have at least four out of returns for at least four out of the five preceding tax years uh, under examination in either large corporate compliance, the old CIC program or our large partnership compliance program or any successor program that they're eligible uh, to to make these disclosures. The guidance is effective for exams that begin after issuance uh, yesterday.
4: Okay. Um, let, let's, uh, let's talk about one, uh, one of the big issues that the uh, LBI has been dealing with this year, the um, uh, expanded disclosure re- regime on foreign income on, on schedules K-2 and K-3. As you know, that, that's uh, kicked up a big fuss among uh, uh, some preparers who think that it's an unnecessary burden. Can you talk about um, w- where that process stands and then how you think that's gone, and then would you expect any further action to modify that, uh, that process?
3: sure we actually just recently issued the instructions uh, in draft form for tax year the tax year 2022 form uh the, the and we had a comment period open on those instructions the comment period just ended on november 8th so at this stage we are evaluating all of those comments we received on the draft instructions, and we will be making adjustments where feasible. We are hoping to finalize the instructions as soon as possible so the taxpayers can start planning for tax year 2022 filings. I uh, do you want to note the draft 2022 instructions do provide a new exception, which was based on a lot of the comments we had heard from the public over the last year. That new exception is called the domestic filing exception, and it exempts uh, taxpayers from filing schedules k2 and k3 when there is no or minimal foreign activity and all the direct partners are u.s individuals there are some notification requirements with a certain time frame as part of the exception uh, but that you know that was feedback that we heard and have taken action to address those concerns uh, there's a number of other changes besides that new exception again that were based on comments that our external stakeholders provided
4: another another issue that that i know that a lot of taxpayers have expressed concerns about that, that LB and I have been dealing with is the process for claiming refunds under the uh, research tax credit. Uh, and, and, and the IRS has extended the transition period during which taxpayers making those claims uh, can, can kind of have an easier time of it. Uh, uh, how, how, how is that process going? And, and, and what, do you, well, what do you say to those practitioners who, as you know, have voiced some concerns about whether that, uh, uh, that compliance challenge could discourage some taxpayers from seeking those refunds in the first place.
3: We are starting to see better information from taxpayers uh, now that the, uh, you know, that the guidance has been in place for some time. I do want to point out that we did, you know, initially when uh, the the memorandum came out, we provided a transition relief that went through January 2023, whereby a taxpayer, if we found that a taxpayer was missing one of the required items, we would correspond with the taxpayer and give the taxpayer 45 days to respond, providing that additional information. Uh, that initial transition relief was set to expire in January 2023, but we just recently extended that transition relief to January of 2024, uh, just so folks have more time to get accustomed to the process. You know, as far as the the burden, you know, our position is that the legal memorandum that was issued really just set forth in one place the existing case law on the topic. It didn't really establish or create new law, it rather synthesized the existing requirements for a valid claim for a refund according to the case law. We also think that, you know, the information that we're requiring to be provided is the same information that taxpayers must use when determining whether they have a valid claim for refund and calculating the amount of that refund. But we do continue to engage with stakeholders to understand their questions and concerns from their line of sight. Uh, we do think, you know, that the process, you know, that this, these requirements for the claims process are beneficial for both IRS and taxpayers because they will significantly improve the upfront workload selection and deselection, so that we're not selecting for examination a claim that's very low risk, which is beneficial to taxpayers.
4: Well, I know that the, the, uh, the IRS said recently that, that you, you, were, you were undertaking an effort to try to limit the number of, of actual field audits that you had to deal with. So far, are you seeing that, the, uh, uh, that, there, that there are more cases in, in, in which the, uh, the documentation uh, is adequate and you don't have to do, do a field audit on these?
3: Yes, we are, you know, we have, you know, been corresponding with a number of different taxpayers, you know, during that 45 day, you know, giving them that 45 day period where they've been missing things and folks have been getting back to us. And that's getting their claims resolved. Um, we are seeing better quality information coming in, which is allowing us to you know resolve claims without having to audit. So we think it's from a resource perspective, really beneficial for us and the taxpayers.
4: You've uh, you've talked some in recent days about changes in how the uh, the IRS and LB and I are going to handle handle transfer pricing audits. Uh, what led you to to, to, to to make that change in focus? I mean, do you think that there are uh, there are more abuses in transfer pricing on the part of companies, or, or is it just that you're you've you've changed your way of looking or, or looking harder and are and are finding more more of the abuses that are out there?
3: Yeah, we're just refining our thinking in transfer pricing. We have a number. You know, this is obviously an issue that. Is you know really pervasive in LBNI examinations. You know, vast majority of the returns uh, that we select for exam have some transfer pricing issues on them. So we're always trying to improve the way we are addressing those issues. So we've got a number of different things uh, underway in the transfer pricing area. Even before the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, we had been looking to hire a significant number of economists, tax law specialists, and other personnel who have transfer pricing expertise. Um, We're also collaborating with TEI on a project to examine how to enhance better cooperation, communication, and efficiency during the audit process when you have transfer pricing issues. You know, we're obviously continuing to expand and refine our use of data analytics so that we can identify the highest risk issues for audit. You know, there are transfer, as I said, transfer pricing issues on the vast majority of our returns. So really want to prioritize where we're using those resources to look at the issues to the ones that present the biggest compliance risks. Uh, We are continuing to expand our use of the International Compliance Assurance Program and joint audits with other tax jurisdictions. We're looking at alternative methods to better train our personnel, including the use of outside professionals. We think that would be helpful, uh, giving us insight into how those outside the IRS are viewing transfer pricing issues. And as you noted, we are looking more closely at cases, even those that have contemporaneous documentation to determine whether to assert penalties. Uh, and we are expecting that will likely lead to an increase in the number of penalties asserted. And, you know, on a related note, looking at whether we should raise the economic substance doctrine or substance over form sham transaction and step transaction doctrine and in, in appropriate cases. And also looking at ways to promote early resolution of issues. The transfer pricing exams tend to be some of our longer issues uh, in LBI exams. So, looking to find ways to resolve them sooner in the exam process. Uh, And also continuing and building on early collaboration with our advanced pricing and mutual agreement office and uh, chief counsel to help us better select and develop issues. Then I also did want to flag, we, a couple years ago, had posted uh, on our website um, some FAQs on transfer pricing documentation best practices. I'm not sure how aware folks are of those, but uh, for anyone who's interested, recommend that you check them out, sort of give our view um, and a little bit more explanation on what we view as best practices with regard to transfer pricing documentation.
0: That was the IRS's Holly Paz speaking with Bloomberg Tax's Michael Rappaport. Before that, you heard Grace Perez-Navarro of the OECD speaking with Isabel Gottlieb. It was recorded at the recent Bloomberg Tax Leadership Forum on November 17th. And that's it for today's podcast. You can find up-to-the-minute news on the latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. Today's episode of Talking Taxes was produced by myself, David Schultz. Rachel Daigle is our editor, and our executive producer is Josh Block. From Washington, I'm David Schultz. Thanks for listening.
5: An individual's race should not be used to help him or harm him in his life's endeavors. A pair of lawsuits has made its way to the Supreme Court, and the decision could dramatically change just who gets into which college.
0: Bloom is effectively using the Asian community as pawns. Every lawsuit needs a villain. To mask an anti-Black and anti-Latino agenda.
5: Does this demoralize me? No, it doesn't demoralize me. This season on Uncommon Law, we'll explore the arguments and the people driving this latest battle over affirmative action. Can the Constitution be used to remedy society's ills?
4: I'm the only person in class who has to raise my hand and say, okay, well, actually, here's how this affects people that look
5: like me. Does the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause prohibit all discrimination based on race? You let somebody in because of their race, you're keeping somebody else out because of their race. There might have been two or three Latinos, including me. And so somehow that's too much, somehow that goes too far. It's hard not to take that very personally. Coming October 25th, part one of a three-part series on affirmative action. What's being decided is whether black and brown people are going to be excluded in significant numbers. Only on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.